Good morning. This is Pastor Mike Letterman with Christ-Lives.org. This morning we'll continue our lesson in the final countdown with Revelation chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to turn to that chapter. In last Sunday's lesson, we studied the tri tribulation and the horsemen of the apocalypse. We saw great horror befall our world as the wrath of God was loosed upon the world. Today I want to focus on the face of an angry yet forgiving God as he continues to offer redemption to those willing to accept his son. Let's read from the word of God. Again, I use the NIV version. If you do not, yours will be similar. Chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Ishkar, 12,000. From the tribe of Jebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Beginning of verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels, standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As we continue to move through the book of Revelation, we're caught in the middle of a parenthetical passage. Chapter 7 is inserted into the narrative to allow us to catch a glimpse, once more, of the grace of God at work during the most horrible time earth has ever known. The seventh chapter of Revelation is the first parenthetical passage of the book. The first parenthetical passage is inserted here between the sixth and seventh seal and contains explanatory matter about things which will transpire during this time when the six seals will take place. This is information that was not contained in the giving of the six seals. The seventh chapter of Revelation is parenthetical. 
Instead of the natural order of events, the seventh seal does not follow the sixth seal immediately. Instead, an explanation of two companies of redeemed people are given, breaking into the thought of the seals, explaining certain things that are transpiring in and between the main order of events. To understand the book of Revelation, one may be aware of seven parentheses surrounding the book of Revelation. Chapter 7 is the first of these parentheses coming between the sixth and seventh seals and reveals other things that are happening during this time. They are the ministry of the 144,000, the multitude saved during the tribulation period, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. You see, in the first chapter of 7, we see the Lord redeem 144,000 Jewish men. These men were sent out into the entire world to preach the gospel of the kingdom to all nations. In this passage, we will see the fruits of their preaching as a vast multitude is brought to faith in Jesus Christ and is delivered out of the great tribulation. You know, it comforts my heart to know that the rapture of the church does not spell the end of people being saved. I praise the Lord that he intends to redeem a multitude that no man could number during the dark years of the tribulation period. This passage reveals the heart of our great God. It is his heart and plan to save sinners, and he is going to do just that during the tribulation. The Bible is clear that Jesus Christ came into this world for the sole purpose of saving sinners from their sins. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, 1 Timothy 1.15. It is also clear that God intends to save every person who will turn by, to Jesus by faith. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John chapter 6, verse 37. Here is God's promise to his elect. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. That is the heartbeat of God and can be heard in the verses before us today. Let's look back into the heart of the tribulation period and rejoin John in his last visit of that terrible time. In these verses, we're going to learn about a vast multitude of redeemed saints, and we're going to get a glimpse into the glory as that curtain is pulled back just a little. So let's take a look at these verses and consider the subject, a multitude that no man could number. I want to share some facts about this precious group of saints that are presented in these verses. Let's talk about the description of the multitude. Verse 9, here they are shown. Reading John's description, this multitude reveals a number of things about who these people are. Number one, their number. They are described as a multitude which no man could number. They are a group of people so vast that John makes no attempt at all to declare their number. What a wonderful image of the grace of God. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved, Acts 2.41. Sometime later, 5,000 were saved in one location, Acts 4.4. We're also told that God added daily to the church such as should be saved, Acts 2.47. I read that and I'm so amazed at his saving power. But what about one million that were saved in Nineveh when the entire city repented and turned to faith in God? Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 through 10. Praise God for his saving grace. We don't deserve it, but praise him for it. Even more amazing than this is the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. 
Over three million were saved by grace when they placed the blood on the doorposts of their houses by faith. Exodus chapter 12. All these great demonstrations of the powerful saving grace of God pale in comparison to what he will do during the tribulation period. God will save a multitude that will number in the multiplied millions. Praise God for his, break, his grace. Let's look at their nationalities. We're told that they all come from all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. Here is a multitude that knows no racial, economic, social, or national distinctions. The gospel has been preached worldwide without respect to any group, and a vast multitude is saved. They are Gentiles, and they have been saved by grace. In the first verses of this chapter, God dealt with Jews. Now he extends his grace to the Gentile nations of the world. I praise the Lord that the gospel of grace is a message that applies to all people everywhere. Mankind has his prejudices, and we judge people by the color of their skin, by their ethnic background, by how they were raised, by how much money they have, and by many other foolish, ignorant standards. God, however, holds no such prejudices. He will save any soul that will come to him by faith. I praise God that it is his way or the highway to hell. I'd also like to remind us that the gospel message is not simply a Baptist message or a Methodist message or a Church of Christ message or a Catholic message either. I praise the Lord that the gospel is for all. Any person who will believe the gospel anywhere in this world will be saved and will go to heaven. Their natures. Some people look at this multitude and they see the church. This multitude is not the church. Look at how they're standing. They're standing. They're standing. I can say that three times. When the church is shown in heaven, they are sitting. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. Second, this crowd was saved out of great tribulation. Verse 14. The church will be saved from that terrible time of wrath and judgment. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Romans 5.9, Revelations 3.10. While they are not the church, their appearance and condition in heaven is clearly described. You see, they're virtuous. They're clothed with white robes. This is always a picture of righteousness in the Bible. These people are saved by grace, and they have been rendered righteous. That is the promise of God to all who will come to Jesus Christ by faith. 1 John 1, 7, Isaiah 1, 18. He is the saving and cleansing power and he is in the saving and cleansing business you know I, I praise the name of the Lord when the blood of Jesus is able to reconcile us to God when Jesus died the wall of separation that had been erected by sin was forever torn down and now we can be reconciled with God these redeemed saints are victorious they have palm branches in their hands palms are a symbol of victory the crowds waved palm branches and placed them in the road as Jesus entered Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago, John 12, 13. These saints are celebrating the great victory that was given to them over sin, Satan, and the power of the Antichrist. They have overcome and they enjoy the spoils of the victory that they have been given. Let's look at what they shout. These saints lift their voices in an anthem of praise to their Redeemer, for his redemption. 
They know that they are in heaven for one reason and for one reason only. They are there because of the grace of God and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They praise him for his great praise. If there was ever a reason for praise, it is because of the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. His salvation is the one reason for praise that all saints share. Our circumstances may change and we may walk through hard places in life. I certainly have. But if you're saved, your, land, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and it will always be so. That's a reason for praise, for shouting, for singing, for testimony, and for all the glory that we can render unto our great God. Luke 10, 20. By the way, we are way behind in the praise department. Verses 11 through 12. When the angelic hosts around the throne of God witnessed the unbridled praise of this redeemed multitude, they joined their voices with them in praise to God. The shouts of the multitude inspire the angels to praise the Lord too. Can you imagine the sound of millions and millions of voices joined together in an anthem of praise? Now the angels lift their voice and they cry, Amen. Thus they add their agreement to the praises of the redeemed. They add a sevenfold statement of glory to God and praise him for who he is and what he does. They know that what they have said is true, so they close their statement of praise with another amen. You know, angels could never praise God for salvation, for they've never known the depths of sin. But these angels have seen the love of God in action as he went about the business of saving lost humans. I think they probably marveled as they watched their creator, Lord Jesus, as he died on Calvary to save people who despised him. They witnessed the spontaneous outbursts of praise as sinners have been saved down through the ages. See, praising God for salvation is a human privilege. Angels are accorded the ability to rejoice for us. Jesus said, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke 15.10 Let's look at the deliverance of this multitude. You see, as John watches this powerful scene, one of the elders approaches him and asks John about the identity of this vast throng of people. Poor John declares his ignorance of their identity and petitions the elder to tell him who they are. And then the elder proceeds to do just that. If you look at the ministry of their deliverance, John is told that these are people who came out of great tribulation. These people have been living through the horrors of the tribulations period. But even during that time of intense wrath and judgment, there is a ray of light as the amazing, boundless grace of God reaches down to touch a vast multitude of lost souls. Then there's the method of their deliverance. These people were saved the same way people have always been and will always be saved. They were saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9. We are told that they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This simple statement reveals a profound truth. God only knows one method of salvation. Whether it was Adam and Eve in the garden, Abel with his sacrifice, Abraham and his ram, 
Israel and the sacrifices of the tabernacle and the temple. Salvation in the Old Testament was through the blood of the Lamb. When they shed the blood of an innocent animal to atone for their sins, they were looking ahead to the day when God would send the perfect sacrifice that would take away sin forever. Those Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to Calvary. When Jesus came and went to the cross, he accomplished what millions of animal sacrifices could not. You see, when Jesus died, he obtained eternal salvation for all those who will believe on him. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14, 9 through 28. Those of us on this side of the cross are saved by looking back to what Jesus did at the cross and realizing that his death and resurrection are all that is needed for our salvation. When we trust him by faith, we are eternally saved. Romans 10 verses 9 through 10. Even in the midst of great tribulation, souls will be saved by the simple preaching of a single gospel. Here it is once again. For I delivered unto you first all that which I also received, how that, our, how that Christ died for our sins and according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4. Let's look at the destiny of this multitude. They're destined to a heavenly presence. See, we're told in verse 15, this multitude finds themselves at home in the presence of a mighty, almighty God. Their days of suffering and sorrow have ended, and they have arrived here in glory. You see, they're no longer separated from the Lord by distance or by sin or by time. They're home with him, and they're here to stay. Notice where they are. Because they have been redeemed and cleansed, they're allowed to stand in the presence of God. This was unheard of in Bible times. In the temple, there was a place called the Court of the Gentiles. This was the outer court of the temple, and non-Jews were not allowed to go any deeper into the temple complex than through this outer court. To do so brought a Gentile under the penalty of death. When Jesus died... The veil of the temple was ripped down the middle. Matthew 27, verse 51. This signified the fact that all men had equal access to God. As I preached in an earlier sermon, that veil was not ripped from the bottom up from the earthquakes, but from the top down as the mighty hands of God ripped the veil as an act that would forever end the old law. Thus, redeemed Gentiles are brought into the very presence of God. Their present condition must make Satan livid with rage. Verse 14 tells us that they came out of great tribulation. These people are in heaven because they were martyred for their faith in Jesus and their refusal to embrace the Antichrist. Their home and judgment is being handed out upon the earth. The worst thing Satan could do to these people was to kill them, and it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to them. They gave the pain and sorrow of a world gone made for the safety and joy of an eternity in the presence of God. They have a new job. They're destined to a heavenly profession. 
The Bible says they will serve him day and night in his temple. This joyous, redeemed multitude is in the presence of God, and they are at the beck and call of God. They will spend their eternity carrying out his will as they serve him, worship him, and bask in his presence. Don't ever think for an instant heaven is going to be a boring place. We'll not sit up there and twiddle our thumbs, bored stiff while eternity passes on. We will be busy serving the Lord. I'm sure there will be plenty to do. And I'm convinced that all our praise and worship time will be enormous. We will rest from our labors, but we will not rest from our service to Almighty God. He has a job for you over there. By the way, there's no place to quit on this side either. Oh, you might step aside and let someone else do a job. There comes a time when it's time for change. There comes a time when new blood must be in some offices. However, there will never come a time this side of the grave when you can just rightfully sit down on God and quit. As long as he leaves you here, he has work for you to do. Get before him, find out what it is, and get to it. As my daddy used to say, you're burning daylight. They are destined to heavenly provisions. Now remember, these saints were saved out of the tribulation period. They had been saved, but they also suffered with everyone else here on earth. Just because they turned to the Lord does not mean that they were sheltered from the horrors of those days. In fact, their faith in Jesus Christ might have made their lives even more miserable here on earth. Remember, the book of Revelation is not written in chronological order. We're seeing people who are martyred throughout the years of tribulation. We're told several things about their past and about what they can anticipate in heaven. Number one, they will hunger no more. Remember the famines we talked about in Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. We're also told that the Antichrist will require people to wear a mark in their bodies before they can buy or sell. Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18. Because of their faith, they will refuse the mark and will go hungry. The Bible also says that their refusal to wear the mark will be a death warrant to them. Revelation 13, 15. But we're told that in heaven, the Lamb will feed them. There will be no more hunger and glory. They're home and they will be well cared for. They will thirst no more. We're told in Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, and then that the earth will turn to blood and be unfit to drink during the tribulation. We'll talk more about that next week. As a result, the people of earth will be thirsty, but in heaven they are led to fountains of living water by the land. They are satisfied there. They will suffer no more. The references to the sun and the heat remind us that the tribulation period will be a period of intense physical suffering, and the redeemed saints of God will not be immune from the effects of God's judgment upon nature. In Revelation 16, verses 8 through 10, the intensity of the sun will be greatly increased, causing dehydrated men more pain and suffering. They will literally chew their tongues in pain and agony, but in heaven, none of the things that hurt them on earth will be allowed to follow them. There might be some here that say, Preacher, what do you know about hunger and thirst? I have been there. I've been there for days when I had no water to drink, or any food to eat, and the only water we could get was that that came out of our own bodies. You can use your imagination. It was a horrible time in my life. And God helped me escape from it. They will weep no more. Imagine all that they've seen and suffered because of their faith. Their hearts have been broken. 
and their eyes wet with tears even as they gave their all for Jesus Christ. But the Lamb of God will wipe away the tears of their suffering and sorrow. He will comfort them and give them rest, peace, and blessing. These blessings are ours as well. Look at Revelation 21 and 22. You know, I praise God that he's a soul-saving God. I praise him that he reaches down in grace to call lost sinners to him so that he can save them. And it does come from my heart to know that he's coming to continue to do this even during the tribulation period. Think about that. He's punishing those who are here on earth. Yet he stops and does everything he can to save the same people that he's punishing. And they listen and they accept Jesus and he saves them. We ought to praise him for his saving grace and power. Do you? Do you? I do. As I think about this multitude today, I know that neither I nor anyone in the sound of my voice will ever be a part of that number. If you're saved, you will see them one day and watch as they shout their praises to God and the Lamb. If you're not saved today and Jesus comes back, you'll never have another opportunity to, to be saved. But here's my invitation today. If you're lost and would like to save, come to Jesus today and show how you can come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. If you're saved but there are issues between you and the Lord that need to be addressed, come forward on your, on your bended knee in front of your TV or your radio and listen. You can come to him and make it right. If you want to thank him for his, your, his grace and his blessings in your life, then do so. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting right now for you. Bow your head with me, please, if you can. If you can't, you're behind the wheel of your car. God has heard me many, many times as I drove to work in the mornings behind the wheel of that car. He can hear you no matter where you are or what you're doing. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day that you've given us today, another beautiful Lord's Day, Father, to, to worship you. Father, be those in the sound of my voice that have made a decision for you, Father. I ask you to bless them. And whatever their decision is for you, Father, I ask you to see that it's done. Father, if those that have, are there that have heard the word have not yet made a decision, Father, I ask you to please lay on their heart the need and the desire to make a decision for you today. There's no time like the present. And Father, if they do so now, they'll never have to suffer through the great tribulation. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus, and for everything that he's done for us and for his salvation that you've offered so gracefully, Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you made a decision today, I'd like to know about it. I'll give this invitation every Sunday morning on the radio. Um, if you would, send an email to ministry at christ-lives.org. 
or visit our contact page at www.christ-lives.org and leave a message there. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.